Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that takes an expansive look at the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories with David Campbell, including Ford issues the latest motor industry warning about Brexit. We talk to the Chief Executive Officer of Meridian Mobility UK, a private company with government backing which brings together government, academia, innovators and developers of autonomous vehicles and other intelligent mobility solutions. Does Australia need the same? And Brian Smith and I take a carefree look at some quirky news stories about motoring and transport. You can find more information or send a comment at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast previous programs on iTunes. So let's start the program with the news. Recently, Overdrive advised that Elon Musk had tweeted that he planned to take Tesla private by delisting from the New York Stock Exchange. Now he has had a change of mind and said he would heed shareholder concerns and no longer pursue the plan. The decision leaves Tesla as a publicly listed company, but raises new questions about its future as investors wonder what the long shot bid meant for Musk's ability to steer the company to profitability. The move also leaves Musk and Tesla having to fend off a series of investor lawsuits and a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission investigation into the factual accuracy of Musk's tweets that funding for the deal was secured. Car manufacturer Ford has issued a Brexit warning to British politicians that it will take whatever action is needed to protect its business. The ominous words came after the American giant blamed uncertainty over Brexit for a colossal £760 million drop in its European earnings in 2017. The firm pointed the figure at plummeting confidence in the UK since the Brexit referendum and raised fears of long-term damage from European Union withdrawal. The pointed comment amid the growing prospect of a no-deal Brexit and increasing doubt as to whether Theresa May can win parliamentary backing for any deal, represents a major turnaround just months after Ford suggested it thought negotiations were very positive. Bosses attribute £470 million of the £760 million loss to the drop in the value of the pound since the Brexit referendum. Recent high-profile accidents involving self-driving cars have cast a shadow on the sector. A recent survey has taken the current temperature of the public's attitude when it comes to autonomous vehicles. Whilst the number of respondents that believe roads would be safer if all vehicles were fully autonomous versus operated by people has decreased by 18%, three-quarters of consumers say fully autonomous vehicles need real-world testing to be perfected. However, 54% say they would prefer that this testing takes place in a different town or city from where they live. The survey, undertaken by the US company Cox Communications, found that there's still a lot of public education that needs to be undertaken. Arizona appears to be the center of self-driving car activity in the States. Now, two US retail giants, Walmart and Kroger supermarkets, 
say that they will be trialling product delivery using autonomous vehicles. Walmart announced a partnership with Waymo to deliver groceries to customers from select supercenter locations via the Google-owned company's fleet of vehicles. Kroger Supermarkets will partner with Neuro, a Californian company that has developed the R1, an electric local commerce delivery vehicle. Both companies are attempting to cut the cost of the last mile deliveries to shoppers by taking the driver out of the equation. US technology firm Seven Stars Cloud Group has entered into a partnership with China's largest electric bus operator, the National Transportation Capacity Company, to provide finance services using blockchain technology. The partnership will run for three years and is worth $24 billion. It's a big deal because the Chinese government plans to replace all traditional buses with electric vehicles as soon as 2021. The project could cost around $50 billion. Seven Stars will provide fixed income leasing, which in turn will provide NTS with regulatory compliant blockchain finance products. And finally, British carmaker Aston Martin is recreating the legendary DB5, as driven by James Bond in Goldfinger. A collectible for true 007 fans, the 25 limited edition vehicles will each be priced at £2.7 million, or around $5 million Australian dollars, and will feature enough working gadgets to make Q proud. The secret agent modifications will be co-developed by Academy Award-winning Chris Coboard, special effects supervisor on eight previous Bond films. So far, rotating number plates have been announced with more to come. It's safe to predict that a working ejector seat will not be included. The original 1964 DB5 featured in Goldfinger and Thunderball, complete with guns protruding from taillights, rotating plates, and a removable ejector roof, sold for $4.6 million at auction in London in 2010. The DB5 has featured in the franchise six times since its first outing in Goldfinger. All 25 DB5s will feature silver birch paint, just as James Bond's movie original did. And that has been the news. The acronym CAV, C-A-V, Connected and Autonomous Vehicles, broadly covers the technology that will create enormous impacts in countries all over the world. It will change how and when we travel, but will also generate jobs and enhance wealth creation opportunities. Private industry is pushing hard and governments can't totally control it, but it is critical that governments facilitate the process if a country is to gain the most benefits, not just corporate profits, but also long-term community benefits. In the UK, they have set up a separate organisation, Meridian Mobility UK Limited, to enhance the interaction between governments and industry. Meridian's Chief Executive Officer is Daniel Ruiz. Daniel brings a calm, thoughtful confidence to a world that is frantically pushing technological developments. We caught up with him at an Intelligent Transport Systems Summit. The UK government has committed a significant amount of funding for the exploitation of CAV-enabled services and systems, all towards a social and economic end. And in order to implement that, they decided that it was easier, better to set up a, a private company which would work back to back with government but also 
back to back or face to face because you can't be back to back with both back to back with government and face to face with industry so that is an important link isn't it mm. it's not uh, one of total control but it's trying to get the best of both worlds i, I have a fantastic job because i have an immense amount of influence mm. a few hundred million pounds gives you influence I have absolutely no authority, so I cannot tell anybody to do what I need to do, but the, the point is being the kind of the conductor of the orchestra is that I can tease, kind of cajole all the musicians to play the same music at the same time. They also have to believe in what you're doing. Yes, yes. So one of the, the, the really fundamental principles of working in Meridian is that we have to believe what we're doing is right and that it is the right thing to do. And convince the people you're talking and then, to. And be convincing in what we're doing. But, but that comes from a lot of consensual work, consultation, collaboration in its truest sense. So working with people, for people, alongside people, and making sure that the messages are being formed with our community. That said, being prepared to stand up and say things that, that may be provocative from time to time and being prepared to have the, the debate, the healthy conversation to just convince that, that what we're saying is right. On occasion, of course, we are diverted and we will revise our plans, but ultimately we communicate what our goals are and then we work towards them openly and transparently. Has government got clear goals? Do they have a clear vision? Well, that's one of the, the turnarounds, I think, in, in UK politics recently, especially in this area, is that there is a degree of vision. Uh, there is leadership from government in the UK. The establishment of the Centre for Connected and Autonomous Vehicles, by which is a joint department, sits between uh, transport and business, was a very deliberate act. That group, the centre, uh, CCAF as we call it, is responsible for the regulation and for the policy and yes, for shaping the vision with industry for connected autonomous vehicles and that in itself represents a degree of leadership that we have not had in many areas for a while. It's leadership towards a better transport system, but it's also creating business and technology, which is the future. Absolutely. So uh, it, I quite often get accused of, of being an automotive person. I am not. In fact, I was brought into the job because my background is more in infrastructure. Um, and this is not an automotive issue. It's not a traffic issue. It's not really a transport issue. It is a mobility issue. And by mobility, I mean the, kind of the, the context is social, it's economic, it's about prosperity, it's about productivity. Uh, and it's about a more effective society. Prosperity is not only an important part of it. Well, transport's not the only important part. Prosperity is, gives you a reason to travel. It yes. sort of links together mm. that without business, and which is going to be more digital, mm -hmm. when we, well, there's not much point to travel unless you've got something to do or then money to spend. Absolutely. And, and that's why an interesting point there is that, that this has actually been initiated by industry in the UK. So uh, the, the, the starting point was from the automotive industry in the UK, putting together a proposal to government saying we believe that this agenda needs to be pursued uh, we're prepared to commit um, around about 250 million pounds will you match it and government debated and they obviously weighed it up relative to some other similar proposals from other sectors and agreed to it and that's what has, has uh, spawned the company that I run Meridian um, and the which is responsible basically for the infrastructure the, the development environment in the UK and a similar amount so half of that 250 million and plus 250 million matched 
is for R&D projects. So a range of projects that have been looking at everything from components through systems, through deployment and pilot projects, showing how connected and autonomous transport can feed into a mobility service. Intelligent transport systems mm. is not just autonomous or Uber. It's got to be more than that? Absolutely. It's intelligent with a little eye, so it's not a bit of jargon. It's smart. I know that people hate the use of all these words because with capital uh, letters they, they, they mean nothing. So it is a, a considered, pragmatic, economic and efficient use of movement means so transport to get people and goods to where they need to be uh, safely smoothly efficiently reliably and all those things coming together which is explicitly a complex thing which includes a degree of chaos because we cannot control it completely but I think we are in, a, in an era where you have to accept that things are complex and let the chaos work for you rather than trying to oversimplify squeeze things into silos and inject inefficiency as a result so that the the, the mobility as a service is another kind of little jargon phrase but if, if you I, I my view it is it's just about regarding transport or mobility as a means from getting from your start to your destination that must require moving from silo to silo moving from mode of transport to mode of transport and doing it in a way, using data, using modern telecommunications, modern computing power to allow you to do it smoothly and without having to, without angst. Mm. Uh, and I think that, that angst is what has fed into transport historically. Um, I used to never travel on a bus in London because I didn't have a clue where they went. Now, of course, there are apps that say, go to this stop here, get these, this bus, change to that bus, get off at that stop. And, it's, and, and you can relax and enjoy the journey rather than having to worry about the logistics of it for yourself. Daniel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your time. And that was Daniel Ruiz, the Chief Executive Officer of Meridian Mobility Limited in the UK, forming the link between government, academia and industry to create a better world through intelligent mobility. You're listening to Overdrive. And Quirky News this week, we catch up again with Brian Smith. So, all right, Brian, would you go into Rolls Royce if you could? We talked about Rolls Royce just now, didn't we? And, and I love the idea of the Rolls Royce and, and it, it, it's luxury. It's obviously nothing I'd ever necessarily want to own. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's I like the idea of a Rolls Royce. I like the the idea of luxury for luxury's sake in a car. I've just been to the announcement, the show, the first uh, reveal of the in Australia of the Rolls-Royce SUV. The Cullinan, surely uh, Rolls-Royce SUV might have been a contradiction in terms, but are we moving to an environment where that is more acceptable? The Middle East, I guess, is the environment <laughs> where it's acceptable. David, what's it called? Does it have a name? The Cullinan. The Cullinan. Mm. That's interesting. The Cullinan Diamond was the biggest diamond ever discovered, I believe. And so (laughs) it's basically saying it's huge. So it's interesting. Rolls-Royce, you got the impression they didn't feel they needed to be in that market, but they've obviously decided they have. What's influenced them, do you think, David? 57% of the luxury market around the world is now SUVs. There you go. 
for all the talk about it. And they have pictures of it, like the Maserati did of it, zooming through the sand deserts, you know, with sand spewing out from the wheels and what have you. I can't really see people doing that, and I certainly can't see them taking them into the bush in Australia. But it was almost you have it because you can have it. Mm. Uh, they do it. But what makes luxury, Brian, because, you know, it's got a big engine, powerful. It's got little things to it, like that has a window between the back seats and the boot area. So the boot area is almost a bit like a bustle, a lady's bustle, which is like the old Rolls Royce where you used to have the old trunk, you know, the suit large case out the back. Oh, yes, actually mounted on it. Well, this is now separated so that if, your driver gets out and opens the back when you park and he gets the picnic gear out, it doesn't lower the temperature in the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> the other th- thing is it, it does have, and we've heard about it before, and I think even a Skoda, top of the range, superb Skoda, which is not a super luxury car by any means, has the thing where you can put an umbrella in the door. The Rolls-Royce, when you put the umbrella in wet, it dries it out. <laughs> so it doesn't go mouldy. Is it quiet, David? Because that's the other big selling point of the Rolls-Royce, the luxury, is about being completely cocooned and shielded from the outside world. Well, I didn't get to drive it. It was just a reveal. Uh, It does have inside, of course, that you can have uh, a range, you can specify a range of different lighting on the roof, which can be look like the Southern Cross or the the Southern Skies and things like that. Oh, and the ceiling, Mm. is it? Hmm. And and tell me, how does it look then? Does it look like a Rolls Royce? Have they compromised, like Porsche did for the? For their, yes, uh, yes, yes. I've got to say that I think the front nose of it isn't as bulldog dozer like nose as it might be. I think if you look at some of the smaller Rolls Royces, which aren't small, that they're quite a subdued grille. But if you looked at the, what is it, the Silver Ghost, the really top one, it looks enormous and bulky. It looks like something out of a, a, a cross between a bulldozer and the bad guy out of the Cars movie. You know, oh. it's got this very solid. But the actual SUV isn't quite as big. It's a big, solid grill and radiator up the front, but it's not as dominant as I thought it might be. However, it's still a big block of a car. You know, there's there's nothing elegant about it in my mind. There's its sophistication in its technology and, and its level of service, but I wouldn't call it elegant. I wouldn't call it a work of art. It's brutal, isn't it? I mean, it's really around sort of shouting at the rest of the world. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. being noticed. I have to say the front is possibly the ugliest thing I've ever seen. It's the sort of thing that um, – now, what's that wonderful car manufacturer that, that makes the most hideous uh, vans, passenger vans? Sanyong and the uh, – and the Stavik. You could put a Sanyong badge on it, I think, and, and people would nod their heads sagely and say, oh, Sanyong's latest uh, terrible adventure in cars, car design. Some of the early Chinese, well, not too early, not that long ago, Chinese cars that looked like they were trying to look that big, but really it ended up looking tacky. As I say, this loses a sense of elegance about it. I had to say, I sat in the back, the very elegant lady, there were quite a number of obviously people who could afford to go around and look at these cars. We were just there as journos. An elegant lady sat in the front. 
and we got chatting away there. And I said, oh, said, it's very good. Take me home. And I meant <laughs> as, as a, a chauffeur, you know. Yes, yeah. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> misunderstanding there. <laughs> she understood immediately, which in some ways was rather offensive, but that's another story. <laughs> Uh, I've got to say the showroom was very good. It was like going in there to get a tailored suit. They had all the cloth up on the wall hanging and you can have a look at and all the different panelling. And it's a very elegant artwork. I, I was admiring a lovely scene, sort of a bit of a landscape in a sort of conceptual style. It was in the toilet. But, uh, yeah. That's... <laughs> Brian, the self-driving cars... There's a story that uh, comes out of America, out of Arizona, where I think we're talking about Waymo. Waymo is the company that's owned by Alphabet Incorporated. Alphabet also owns Google. So there is the link between the two there. But Waymo is the company that is developing autonomous vehicles. One of their vehicles was hit by an alleged impaired driver who ran a red light on County Club Drive and Southern Avenue in Mesa in Arizona, I think it is, and they found that clearly it wasn't the autonomous car. In fact, it wasn't even operating as an autonomous car. But, Brian, can autonomous vehicles, they have the image of solving every situation, yet it's not that simple, is it? Well, yeah, people are sort of reading this as saying, well, the the autonomous cars fail to to prevent a crash. But I think the fact that this crash occurred demonstrates the potential value of autonomous vehicles. So there's a hmm. human error is responsible for 90% of crashes. And, and in this case, this was human error. A drunk driver went through a red light and crashed into the, into the other vehicle. So if these two vehicles were autonomous, it would be much rarer that something like this would occur. So for me, the fact that this happened is, is I think, more of a demonstration of the need to take the human equation out of... Uh, out of transport as much as possible. The thing that I think it also raises is what is the control and the manner in which we're looking at measuring and controlling properly the tests that are being gone there? I think perhaps they're probably being done as honourable as possible, but are they in every circumstance? Uh, Now, there was another crash, a similar story, with a Waymo vehicle in Chandler, Arizona. In that case, an oncoming vehicle swerved to avoid striking another car. It contacted the Waymo van that was was operating in autonomous mode. Waymo was ruled not at fault. Now, if you look at some things, what was the one the other day, I think Uber one, where the manner in which the trial was being conducted was less than perfect, appeared to be less than perfect. Yeah. We need to look at how we're managing, we're giving regulation to allow this to happen, I think. My company is involved in um, some quite a few tests uh, in the UK uh, on autonomous vehicles, and um, there's an incredible amount of interest uh, from manufacturers as well as uh, governments about how to make this thing work. So, um, I mean, they are really being tested, torture tested for sure. But uh, you're right; they need to they, they need to be proven. I think uh, I've seen some some uh, people talking about uh, the fact that pedestrians are unpredictable and that uh, really they're they're the fault that the reason that uh, autonomous vehicles aren't progressing as much is because if only the pedestrians were less unpredictable, then we'd be able to to manage them. My fear is that uh, 
uh, we're so interested in the technology that will force people to uh, be fenced away and and move on their own sort of roads in a sense to allow autonomous vehicles to to occur. I was talking to Paul Steely White from New York who was saying that sometimes we get these, as I've referred to them, statements of faith, though they're absolutes of people are causing the problems by looking at their phones, yet in reality there's a mixture. You know, it, it's one crash is often a range of factors that mm. are involved in it, and I think it's it's not simple to either dismiss them, as you were saying earlier, because of one thing, you know, people will never be good enough, versus saying, well, if it is people that are causing the problems, how do we then have, uh, you know, mobile phones that will beep at you if you're about to walk onto a street or, or shut down if you're about to walk onto a street? I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm saying that the nature of the answer may come along with clever technology in a broader sense than what we're talking about at the moment. There's a risk, I suppose, of victim blaming in that, um, you know, the, that you say the vulnerable road user should be more careful, you know, that the, the, the rabbit shouldn't put itself in the position to be eaten by the fox. And I, I think really that, you know, if, if we're piloting around gigantic devices that can kill us in order to move around and go to the shops and buy nappies or something like that, then I think it's it's more that we should aim the technology to to make these things less likely to kill people. Mm. A, a case in point is uh, trucks, right? So you see there's been a few ads and, and documentaries about, um, uh, you know, people being shown how difficult it is to see from a truck. You know? So they'll, they'll ask someone to jump in a truck and, and what can they see as, they, as they're in the driver's seat? I can't see anything. And then they climb down and they're shown that there's a, a cyclist just in front of them or something just beside them it's, it, that they're impossible to see. And so the, the lesson you're supposed to take away from that is that if you're a cyclist or a pedestrian, make sure that you're in a position to be seen by the truck driver. The lesson I take away from it is there's something very wrong with the way we're designing trucks. And <laughs> the truck should be designed so that we can see people around us. It's a crazy situation where uh, it's the pedestrian's fault uh, if they're hit by a car. I drove a Hino about a year ago now. It was one of the first in its market to have a reversing camera as standard equipment. I, I would have thought that was something that should have come in as soon as the technology was there. Brian, this is lovely to talk to you. Next week we'll have a little bit of a chat, particularly about a jacket that you might buy, which I think may give a great chance of encouraging active transport, that is walking and perhaps even cycling as well. But for today, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, David. Brian Smith, and here we were on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Daniel Ruiz, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information or to make a comment, go to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program or previous programs on iTunes. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Listening.